Welcome to REI Energy and Climate Podcast. This is Aaron from REI. We are a Beijing-based independent think tank with a focus on climate policy and energy transition. In the last week's episode, we dissected the reasoning behind disruptions caused by power shortages in China. The reasons may remain in 2022, and some argue the power outages could happen again. To understand the challenges surrounding China's power sector reform, we encourage you to check out our last episode. Hello, everyone. This is Zhao Ang from REI. This is our last episode of 2021. We would like to look back to all the episodes from this year and see what we have learned from the major climate energy events in 2021. Yeah, and 2021 was the first full year of our energy and climate podcast. We increased our podcast frequency from biweekly to weekly in July of 2021 to cover the rapidly evolving energy and climate policy changes from both China and abroad by examining the policy reports of think tanks and also analyzing the policy updates from across the world. Zhao Ang, as I was producing our last episode last week. I was really surprised to see that we were already on episode forty-eight. I'm also surprised too because we have been very busy in producing episodes in the weekly basis. So approaching the end of the year, when we look back, we have achieved a lot. So as we produced about forty、uh, episodes in this year only. So you mentioned about forty-eight, and about eight episodes. Came from、uh, year twenty twenty, so it's not reasonable to talk about them all. You know,、uh, it's too many.、Uh, we will divide the episode into two groups:、uh, one climate,、uh, the other energy, because our podcast title is、uh, REI Climate Energy. So I think、uh, in this kind of presenting our past episodes in twenty twenty one. Uh, we hope our listeners can learn what we have covered and what we have learned together with us. Yeah, and to start regarding climate issues, the international climate governance and negotiations were definitely the most significant topic of last year. In addition, we also had some episodes discussing how the healthcare sector plays a significant role in decarbonizing the economy. As many businesses and organizations throughout different sectors have been taking a more bottom-up approach to take action in climate mitigations, so our main discussions were surrounding COP26 that was hosted in Glasgow in November of 2021, and the healthcare decarbonization roadmaps for China. And internationally, COP26 conference of parties 26 in Glasgow, UK, actually provided a key opportunity for policymakers from more than 200 countries coming together to renew their climate commitment and build up new collaborations on different urgent areas such as methane emission control, road transport decarbonization, and coal phase out. We talk about the national determinant contributions、uh, (NDCs) in short of East Asia countries, including China, Japan, Korea, in various episodes. And on this field, we also had a talk with a policy researcher from Carbon Care, you know, lab about the climate actions in Hong Kong. 
Yeah, and the COP26 climate summit ended with a final agreement called the Glasgow Climate Pact, which was signed off by 197 countries, ranging from the big emitters such as China and India to small island states who are generally considered highly vulnerable to the impact of climate change. The Climate Pact requests countries to revisit and strengthen their climate pledges by the end of 2022, so right before the COP27 event that will happen in Egypt, and also set up processes towards delivering a global goal on high levels of climate finance. So other than the Climate Pact, COP26 also resulted in other significant commitments from different countries. And that includes more than 100 world leaders promising to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. It also uh, signed off commitments from India and Brazil, uh, committing for the first time to achieve net zero emissions by 2070. And also more than 100 countries signed on to the Global Methane Pledge. When you were producing the series of episodes on COP26, what impressed you the most? Or what kind of interesting observation did you have? My biggest impression is that climate competition among parties becomes as important as cooperation. The nature of UN climate negotiations will never downplay the significance of international cooperation on climate change. To some extent, if the nearly three decades of UN climate conferences have some major legacies. One of them is definitely about cooperation. However, the urgency of addressing climate change and pursuing a 1.5 degree Celsius scenario has generated a new approach of climate governance, which is climate competition. Of course, uh, many argue under the pandemic and the new geopolitical environments, in the past few years also play a role. But that's it's, that's more complicated scenario, but I just want to focus on the climate and the environment issues. Some high-income countries who have stronger technology and economic capabilities and occupy the big chunk of the carbon emissions of both in contemporary and historical terms actually work together to make more ambitious carbon emission reduction goals in a voluntary basis. So this is quite new and quite influential in the past two years. If we put the climate uh, summit in April 2021 into account, if we put many voluntary and small group countries' collaboration on climate change into account, we will see COP26 was just the picking point, or the summit point, that this climate competition as a new approach to addressing climate change is become a kind of mainstreaming approach. I think no matter G7 or G20 and other value-shared countries work together to address climate change, uh, indicating the methane pledge, coal face-up pledge, and others uh, during the COP26, they all came from the long-term uh, negotiation and discussion before that event, before COP26. So this is, uh, I think, probably the most influential long-term impact for, for uh, the collective climate governance in the next three uh, decades. 
Yeah, and、um, we saw that aside from countries, many industries and sectors also took a lead and made their own climate commitments at this year's、uh, COP26 conference in Glasgow. And one of those industries、um, we observed is the healthcare sector, who causes around 4.4 percent of global GHG emissions. And plans to reach its own carbon、uh, neutrality goals by 2050. And、uh, we also saw that on November 9th, which was the Science and Innovation Day at COP26, initiatives on that day has enhanced international cooperation between governments, academics, businesses, and、uh, civil societies. To ensure science and innovation delivers for all areas in order to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, and this is especially true,、uh, reflecting on what John said about cooperation, where more developed countries should be using their technology and innovation to help less developed countries to also reach their carbon neutrality goals. Yeah, it's true. On the Science and Innovation Day, one of the major announcements related to healthcare sector、uh, is about forty-seven countries, nearly fifty countries,、uh, committed to build health system which are able to withstand the impact of climate change and are in low carbon and sustainable way. Behind the commitment, the countries representing over one third of global healthcare emissions. Uh, have committed to develop a sustainable and low carbon health system. Some of them have set a deadline of 2050, even earlier. So by which their healthcare system will reach net zero or carbon neutrality. Yeah, and this past year, REI has completed various projects in sustainable health as well. So in our episode 22 and 23, we detailed a newly released report by an international organization called Healthcare Without Harm, who we've been partnering on the global roadmap for healthcare decarbonization. And we looked into the specific pathways for China's healthcare industry to reduce its emissions. IEI also partnered with them to publish a Chinese version of their decarbonization report. We see human health and environmental health goes hand in hand, and especially after reviewing WHO's newly released report that was published in September. On air quality index, that updated report specifically points out a mistake in their previous report from 15 years ago, and declares that there is really no safe level of PM 2.5 or other air pollutants for a healthy human body. From our projects, we also saw the theme that. Those who work in the health industry is also willing to do more for the environment, especially knowing that how significant the environment could impact human health. So in China, the healthcare industry's carbon emission only accounts for about five percent of the national total. So John, do you think China should follow other countries' example in decarbonizing its healthcare sector? Yeah, it's a good question. You know. 
China's priority, I think, is still in energy sector, particularly coal power, because China's total carbon emission, like 90% of carbon emission, comes from energy sector, which is heavily depending on coal. But due to the emergency of the climate change, I do think it's a good timing for healthcare sector to make some preparations. You know, to achieve a decarbonization pathway, the first step you should do is to uh, account how many carbon emissions you emit every year and how the carbon emissions change in the future. So I think for Chinese healthcare sector, it's great to prepare to do the carbon emission counting and also to make decarbonization roadmap by the end of this five years plan, like by 2025. I think that could be achievable and to make the long-term impact uh, after 2025, China can uh, speed up the decarbonization process in different sectors. This is what I think about how the healthcare sector should do in this area. So in order to prevent a climate disaster, we need to keep our carbon emissions under control. Under our energy component of the podcast, we covered various topics within energy transition and also transportation electrification. So Zhao Long, do you want to give us a little bit more detail about our energy transition aspect of the program? Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, we have a lot of uh, discussions about the energy transition in 2021. A lot of things actually happened over the year in this area. Just ahead of the COP26 this year, uh, a lot of international organizations published their updated reports to warn uh, policymakers of different countries how important to tackle climate change as soon as possible. So let me start from the first half of 2021. International Energy Agency as a, the important and leading energy policy think tank around the world, this organization produced a net zero by 2050 report, uh, which was regarded by many observers that the most ambitious uh, policy report on energy decarbonization published by IEA in decades. So that report was published in April 2021. After this publication, many Chinese colleagues were interested in how IEA's idea about China's energy sector uh, decarbonization roadmap. So they uh, work with Chinese colleagues from Tsinghua University and other institutions to launch a report called Energy Sector Roadmap to Carbon Neutrality in China in September 2021. We actually use uh, three episodes uh, to cover uh, these two reports. So to dissect IEA's reports and explain how their scenario analysis are relevant. So IEA's report is to offer a feasibility study in the aspect of the technology, finance, and the policy. The report points out, the China's part, the China's report points out China may gain huge amount of social, economic, and environmental benefit. Uh, not only for China itself, but also for the rest of the world, if China achieves early peak and early carbon neutrality. So, Zhao Wang, how early is early in terms of carbon peaking and neutrality? That's a key question. And uh, we read some analysis from 
domestic research institutes and also IEAs and other research institutes from like US. I think in order to achieve global 1.5 degree Celsius scenario, China is expected to achieve carbon peak uh, around 2025 and carbon neutrality by around 2055. You know, China's official commitment on these two goals are actually 2030 and 2060, so like uh, five years uh, delayed, right? But I think for the Chinese policymakers, the commitment actually are giving uh, Chinese policymakers a kind of room or space to step up or to increase the uh, commitment. According to my understanding, I think China's ability and the potential to achieve early peak and early neutrality are huge. So based on the IEA data, uh, in 2020, China's national carbon emissions are about 13 gigatons, like a 13 billion CO2 equivalent uh, metric tons, which almost 90% of which about 11 gigatons carbon CO2 equivalent comes from energy sector. So in the energy sector, coal accounts for vast majority of carbon emissions. So therefore, the pace of cutting off the coal consumption in China determines whether China can reach an early peak and early neutrality. Yeah, and coal was also a heavily discussed topic throughout the past year. For us, we looked at uh, China's growing investment in coal within its borders, which was uh, in episode 19, and China committing to stop overseas coal investment in episode 35. And we also talked about the impact of raising coal power tariffs in episode 38. So the serious power outage episode, which we talked about uh, last time, happened in summer and fall of 2021 in nearly 20 provinces around China. And that event made policymakers having to put power supply security in the forefront of its electricity issues. Although reducing coal consumption is important, but it must take a backseat, especially in the face of keeping electricity consistent for the country. So reducing its coal consumption, a serious and long-term strategy in order to reach China's climate goals. So on the road to decarbonization, a limiting coal, like Zhao Wang said, is going to be an unavoidable step. But how do we strike a balance between the energy supply and also the climate commitments that China has set out? It's going to be a continuous challenge for the next decade. After the coal, we have to think about the other very important area, which becoming even more important uh, in the future, transport. You know, China now has been the, the largest car market in the world for many years, and China's consumption of the oil has been increasingly and has uh, depend on the import from other countries for quite a long time. So the transport, particularly the road transport decarbonization, is a very uh, important policy issue uh, in the policy agenda. The road transport accounts for 18% of the carbon emission worldwide, 
uh, and in China it's close to 10%. The very mainstreaming way to decarbonize the road transport is through electric vehicle. So with the lead of Tesla Motors, American electric vehicle manufacturer, the electric vehicles and its related sectors such as the battery production was one of the hottest industries worldwide in 2020 and 2021. In the past a couple of years, China has been the leader in the EV sales and the production, both from international companies such as Tesla and domestically with Chinese brands like NIO or BYD. So in this area, Aaron, can you introduce some episodes we already produced on this yeah, so we spent actually quite a few episodes discussing the growth of China's electric vehicle market. So in episode 11, we talked about China's plans to achieve its road transport decarbonization goals of increasing the current 5% electric vehicle sales proportions to up to 20% of electric vehicles sales of total vehicles by 2025. And um, that is quite an ambitious goal for any economy. We In that episode, we discussed if China is able to achieve that goal. And then in episodes 27 and 28, we also looked at the future of intelligent transport in China, especially uh, via the rapid development of autonomous driving and MAAS, Mobility as a Service, and also the future development of electric vehicles and how those technology could be utilized. Uh, electric vehicle is already the fastest growing industry in China, as Zhao has mentioned, and China is the largest manufacturer of EVs worldwide. So from that episode, we learned that between 2001 to 2020, there has been a consistent annual 12.57% increase in sales in EV. And in 2020, China has exported almost a million vehicles to different countries worldwide. So from the amount of electric vehicles that's being sold and manufactured, we also saw that Chinese government and industry has been pouring extremely large amounts of investments into electric vehicle startups and having tremendous progress in terms of the innovation of car design and also battery design. The China's big improvement in electric vehicle manufacturing and the market has given many observers a kind of idea that China is try, trying to use the EV as an opportunity to leapfrog the cars industry or vehicle manufacturing industry because in the gasoline or uh, diesel engine the vehicle industry China hasn't done very well uh, the European US and Japanese car makers are still uh, leading forces so China is trying to use this as a new opportunity to overcome its technological and uh, engineering obstacles but despite the mainstreaming of electric vehicles in the road transport decarbonization i think the fuel cell electric vehicles is still taken into account uh, by policymakers uh, in different countries uh, particularly in the heavy duty vehicles areas uh, i still remember i had a talk 
uh, with Dr. Greg Chancher in early 2021 to learn how Japanese government using its resources and the policy measures to support the fuel cell electric vehicle development. And so on top of that, uh, although some EV manufacturers, particularly Tesla and others, already developing some new models of heavy-duty uh, trucks, um, but I think in the near future, between the battery electric vehicles and the fuel cell electric vehicles, there are still some opportunity for both of them to uh, give the still have the opportunity to provide demand of heavy duty transport. Yeah. So um, after talking about transportation electrification and also energy transition, we want to take a look at what will happen in 2022 and look forward to see how this industry will evolve in the next year. Yeah, 2022 will be a very exciting year of time. And in the climate and energy part, I think 2022 will not be same as important as in 2021 because the COP26 was regarded as a very big uh, climate event for the world to step up on the climate mitigation actions. But as the dressing climate change becomes uh, more urgent based on uh, the global consensus, uh, mostly on 2030, global carbon emission needs to be halved. And by 2050, uh, the global carbon emission need to uh, go to net zero. So that's not give us too much time to act in, in the future. So what I expect for the next year include three parts. The first one is about the COP27 in Egypt. As we see, the one of the major outcome of the COP26 is to require the member states to hand in the enhanced NDC before COP27. So it's give the very clear signal that every member of the UNFCCC has to work harder to increase their NDCs. So I think that will give us uh, some expectation uh, by the end of next year. The second part is about what the IPCC, the sixth assessment report, will tell us. You know, we have the physical science basis, the working group one assessment report came out this year. And in next year, we'll have the, the two. One is focusing on the impact, adaptation, and the vulnerability. And the third one is focusing on mitigation. So those two reports actually have closer link with policies and with the impact and the solutions. So I think based on those two imports and the best available scientific researches on climate and its impact and the mitigation, uh, policymakers may gain better understanding and based on that may uh, have uh, more ambitious targets and action and policy measures to address climate change. The third one is about uh, what we see from what have achieved uh, during COP26. No matter the methane emission control or uh, the coal phase-out pledges or the EV pledge, all those kind of voluntarily based, all those voluntary pledges uh, will support what I just mentioned, climate competition uh, approach. 
So after those pledges, uh, what we can see from those uh, pledges and what kind of actions those countries behind the pledges show us in 2022 will be very interesting to see, particularly, for example, the co-face-out pledge about Vietnam. Vietnam joined this in a very dramatic way, although the country is in a very rapid economic blooming, have a huge uh, demand of coal and energy consumption. But the, the country want to step up to follow the example of the South Africa with some financial support from OECD countries. So what's exactly the uh, plan would be for Vietnam? I think that would be very interesting example and the case for us to see in 2022. Yeah. So Zhao Wang, thank you for helping us um, look forward to what will happen in 2022. And uh, this is all for our episode today. So we hope you enjoyed our annual review of the past year. And if you have any questions about any of our episodes, you're welcome to contact us through email at info at rei.org.cn or by LinkedIn through searching REI. We wish our listeners stay well and healthy, and we wish our listeners a happy new year. See you all in 2022. Happy new year. Goodbye. Goodbye.